Chapter 9 of Visions and Revisions by John Cooper Powis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Matthew Arnold. It is easy to miss the especial grandeur of Matthew Arnold's work, the airy persiflage of his prose, its reiterated lucidities, pleasing to some, irritating to others, will have a place, but not a very important place, in English literature. Even those magical and penetrating aphorisms, with which he has held the door open to so many religious and moral vistas, tease us a little now, and suggestive enough in their hour, do not deepen and deepen upon the intellect with the weight of aphorisms from Epictetus or Goethe. The stream of tendency that makes for righteousness runs a little shallow. It has so many pebbles under its clear wave. That word of his, the secret of Jesus, wears best of all. It was a happy thought to use the word secret, a thought upon which those whose religious creed binds them to the method rather than the secret may well ponder. As a critic, too, though illuminating and reassuring, he is far from clairvoyant. A quaint vein of pure, good-tempered, ethical philistinism prevents his really entering the evasive souls of Shelley or Keats or Heine. With Wordsworth or Byron, he is more at home. But he misses many subtleties, even in their simple temperaments. He is no Proteus, no wizard of critical metempsychosis. For all his airy wit, he is a plain blunt man who loves his friend. In fact, when one compares him as a sheer illuminator of psychological twilights to Walter Pater, one realises at once how easily a quite great man may render himself stupid by sprinkling himself with the holy water of fixed principles. No, it is neither of Arnold the theological freelance, nor of Arnold the critic of literature that I want to speak, but of Arnold the poet. Personally, I hold the opinion that he was a greater poet than either Tennyson or Browning. His philosophy is a far nobler, truer, and more permanent thing than theirs and there are passages and single lines in his poetry which overtop by enormous distances anything that they achieved you ask me what the philosophy of matthew arnold was it is easy to answer that it was the philosophy of all the greatest among mortal men in his poetry he passes completely out of the region of theological argument and his attitude to life is the attitude of Sophocles and Virgil and Montaigne and Cervantes and Shakespeare and Goethe. Those who read Matthew Arnold and love him know that his intellectual tone is the tone of those great classical writers and his conclusions their conclusions. He never mocks our pain with foolish, unfounded hopes and he never permits mad despair to paralyze him. He takes life as it is and, as we all have to do, makes the best of its confusions. If we are here, as on a darkling plain, swept by confused alarms of struggle and flight, where ignorant armies clash by night, we can at least be true to one another. One wonders sometimes if it be properly understood by energetic teachers of youth that there is only one intellectual attitude towards life, only one philosophy, 
only one ultimate mood. That is the mood of resignation, which from Homer to Matthew Arnold is alone adapted in the long run to the taste of our days upon earth. The real elements of our situation have not altered in the remotest degree since Achilles dragged Hector round the walls of Troy. Men and women still love and hate, still enjoy the sun and live light in the spring, still advance true friends and beat back dangerous foes, and upon them the same constellations look down, and upon them the same winds blow and upon them the same sphinx glides through the obscurity with the same insoluble question nothing has really changed the river of time may pass through various landscapes but it is the same river and at the last it brings to us as the banks fade dimmer away and the stars come out murmurs and scents of the same infinite sea Yes, there is only one philosophy, as Disraeli said, jesting, and Matthew Arnold, among the moderns, is the one who has been allowed to put it into his poetry. For though, before the flamentia moenia of the world's triple brass, we are fain to bow our heads inconsolably, there come those moments when, a hand laid in ours, we think we know the hills whence our life flows. The flowing of the river of life, the washing of the waves of life, how well one recalls from Arnold's broken and not always musical stanzas, reference to that sound, to the sound so like the sound of those real sea tides that Sophocles long ago heard in the Aegean, and listened, thinking of many things as we listen and think of many things today. For we are like swimmers in the sea, poised on the top of a huge wave of fate, and whether it will lift us to the land, or whether it will bear us out to sea, back out to sea to the dark gulfs of death, we know not. Only the event will teach us in its hour. I sometimes think that a certain wonderful blending of Realism and magic in Matthew Arnold's poetry has received but scant justice. In the Forsaken Merman, for instance, there are many stanzas that make you smell the salt foam and imagine all that lies hidden and strange down there upon the glittering sand. That line, where great whales go sailing by, round the world for ever and die, has a liberating power that may often recur when one is god knows far enough from the spouting of any whale and the whole poem has a wistful haunting beauty that never grows tedious matthew arnold is a true classical poet it is strictly in accordance with authentic tradition to introduce those touches of light quaint playful eerie realism into the most solemn poetry it is what Virgil, Catullus, Theocritus, Milton, Landor all did. Some persons grow angry with him for a certain tone of half gay, half sad, elusive tenderness when he speaks of Oxford and the country round Oxford. I do not think there is anything unpleasing in this. So did Catullus talk of Sermio, Horace of his farm, Milton of Deva Wizard's stream, 
Landor, of Sorrento and Amalfi. It is all of a piece with the resignation of a philosophy which does not expect that this or that change of dwelling will ease our pain, of a philosophy that naturally loves to linger over familiar well-sides and roadways and meadow-paths and hillsides, over the places where we went together when we still had thyrsus. The nature poetry of Matthew Arnold touching us with the true classic touch, and yet with something I know not what, of more wistful tenderness added, is a great refreshment after the pseudo-magic, so vague and unsatisfying of so much modern verse. It matters not, lightcomer, he has flown, but we have him in the sweet spring days, with whitening hedges and uncrumpled fern, and bluebells trembling by the forest ways, and scent of hay new mown. Or that description of the latter season, too quick despair, wherefore wilt thou go? Soon will the high midsummer pomps come on, soon shall we have gold-dusted snapdragon, sweet William with his homely cottage smell, and stocks in fragrant blow, roses that down the alleys shine afar, and open jasmine-muffled lattices, and group under the dreaming garden-trees, and the pale moon and the whitening evening star. True to the only philosophy, Matthew Arnold is content to indicate how for each one of us the real drama of life goes on with a certain quite natural, quite homely, quite quiet background of the strip of earth where we first loved and dreamed, and were happy and were sad, and knew loss and regret, and the limits of man's power to change his fate. There is a large and noble calm about the poetry of this writer, which has the effect upon us of the falling of cool water into a dark fern-fringed cave. He strips away lightly, delicately, gently, all the trappings of our feverish worldliness, our vanity and ambition, and lifts open, at one touch, the great moon-bathed windows that look out upon the line of white foam and the patient sands. And never is this calm deeper than when he refers to death, for there, he says, speaking of that cemetery of friends where his thyrsus lies, for there thine earth-forgetting eyelids keep the morningless and unawakened sleep under the flowery oleander's pale. Sometimes, as in his Tristram and Isolt, he has permitted little touches of a startling and penetrating beauty, such as, returning to one's memory and lips, in very dusty and arid places, bring all the tears of half-forgotten romance back again to us and restore to us the despair that is dearer than hope. Those lines, for instance, when Tristram, dying in his firelit tapestried room, tended by the pale Isolt of Brittany, knows that his death-longing is fulfilled, and that she, his other Isolt, has come to him at last. Have they not the very echo in them of what such weariness feels when, only not too late, the impossible happens. Little he cares for the rain beating on the roof, or the moan of the wind in the chimney, or the shadow on that tapestried wall. He listens, his heart almost stops. What voices are those in the still night air? What light in the court? What steps on the stair? 
One wonders if the reader, too, knows and loves that strange, fragmentary, unrhymed poem called The Strayed Reveller, with its vision of Circa and the sleeping boy fawn, and the wave-tossed wanderer, and its background of the fitful earth murmurs and dreaming woods. Strangely down upon the weary child smiles the great enchantress, seeing the wine-stains on his white skin and the berries in his hair. The thing is slight enough, but in its coolness and calmness, and sad, delicate beauty, it makes one pause and grow silent, as in the long-hushed galleries of the Vatican, one pauses and grows silent before some little-known, scarcely catalogued Greek vase. The spirit of life and youth is there, immortal and tender, yet there too is the shadow of that pitiful, in vain, with which the brevity of such beauty, arrested only in chilly marble, mocks us as we pass. It is life, but life at a distance, life refined, winnowed, sifted, purged. Yet, O oh Prince, what labour, O oh Prince, what pain! The world is perhaps tired of hearing from the mouths of its great lonely exiles the warning to youth to sink into its own soul, and let the mad throng clamour by with their beckoning idols and treacherous pleading. But never has this unregarded hand been laid so gently upon us as in the poem called Self-Dependence. Heaven forgive us, we cannot follow its high teaching, and yet we too, we all, have felt that sort of thing. When standing at the prow of a great ship, we have watched the reflection of the stars in the fast divided water. Unaffrighted by silence round them, undistracted by the sights they see, these demand not that the world about them yield them love, amusement, sympathy. But with joy the stars perform their shining, and the sea its long moon-silvered roll. For self-poised they live, nor pine with noting all the fever of some differing soul. The one philosophy is, as Matthew Arnold himself puts it, a trunci paratus, prepared for either event. Yet it leans, and how should it not lean, in a world like this, to the sadder and more final? That version of a godless universe, rocking its obscure body to and fro, in ghastly space, is a vision that refuses to pass away. To the children of chance, as my Catholic philosopher says, chance would seem intelligible. But even if it be, if the whole confluent ocean of its experience be unintelligible and without meaning, it remains that mortal men must endure it, and comfort themselves with their little pleasures. The immoral cruelty of fate has been well expressed by Matthew Arnold in his poem called Miserinus, where the virtuous king does not receive his reward. He, for his part, will revel and care not. There may be nobler, there may be happier ways of awaiting the end, but whether revelling or refraining, we are all waiting the end, waiting and listening, half bitterly, half eagerly, seems the lot of man upon earth, and meanwhile that, power too great and strong, even for the gods to conquer or beguile, sweeps earth and heaven and man and gods along, like the broad volume of the insurgent Nile, and the great powers we serve themselves must be slaves of a tyrannous necessity. 
Matthew Arnold had, and it a rare gift in spite of his peaceful domestic life, and in spite of that interlude of the Marguerite poems, a noble and a chaste soul. Give me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me, prayed the psalmist. Well, this friend of Thyrsus had a clean heart and a right spirit, and these things in this turbulent age have their appeal. It was the purging of this hyssop that made it possible for him, even in the Marguerite poems, to write as only those can write whose passion is more than the craving of the flesh. Come to me in my dreams, and then, in sleep I shall be well again, for then the night will more than pay the hopeless longing of the day. It was the same chastity of the senses that made it possible for him to write those verses upon a young girl's death, which are so much more beautiful, though those are lovely too, than the ones Oscar Wilde wrote on the same subject. Strew on her roses, roses, but never a spray of you, for in silence she reposes, our wood that I did too. Her cabined ample spirit, it fluttered and failed for breath, Tonight it doth inherit the vasty halls of death. Matthew Arnold is one of the poets who have what might be called the power of liberation. He liberates us from the hot fevers of our lusts. He liberates us from worldliness, our perversions, our mad preoccupations. He reduces things to their simple elements and gives us back air and water and land and sea. And he does this without demanding from us any unusual strain. We have no need to plunge into Dionysian ecstasies, or cry aloud after cosmic emotion. We have no need to relinquish our common sense, or to dress, or eat, or talk, or dream in any strange manner. It is enough if we remember the fields where we were born. It is enough if we do not altogether forget out of what quarter of the sky Orion rises and where the Lord Star Jupiter has his place. It is enough if we are not quite oblivious of the return of the spring and the sprouting of the first leaves. From the poetry of Matthew Arnold, it is possible to derive an art of life, which carries us back to the beginnings of the world's history. He, the civilized Oxonian, he, the domestic moralist, he, the airy, playful scholar, has yet the power of giving that epic solemnity to our sleep and our waking, to our going forth to our work and our labour until the evening, to the passing of the seasons over us, which is the ground and substance of all poetic imagination, and which no change or progress or discovery can invade or spoil. For it is the nature of poetry to heighten and to throw into relief those eternal things in our common destiny which too soon get overlaid. And some things only poetry can reach. Religion may have small comfort for us when in the secret depths of our hearts we endure a craving of which we may not speak, a sickening, aching, longing for the lips so sweetly forsworn. But poetry is waiting for us, there also, with her rosemary and her rue. Not one human heart but has its hidden shrine, before which the professional ministrants are fain to hold their peace. But even there, under the veiled figure itself, 
some poor poetic jongleur de notre dame is permitted to drop his monk's robe and dance the dance that makes time and space nothing end of chapter nine